Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about fear and our response as Christians to domestic abuse. But before I do that, I want to remind you of PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community. And if you are benefiting from what you're hearing from the PeaceWorks podcast, then you will benefit even more from PeaceWorks University. As I often say, it is your best next step. So you can learn more about PeaceWorks University and all the resources we have over there at chrismoles.org. All right, so today... Uh, I just want to spend some time talking a little bit about our fears. And, and this came up at a discussion with some of my friends online about uh, the church's response to domestic abuse. And, you know, as I recall, as I first got engaged in the work, I mean, we obviously were struggling. There was um, difficulty in our responses. Our responses were often incomplete. They just lacked um, the robust um nature that would come with maybe case wisdom and, and longevity. And now we're about 10 years into that journey or so, maybe, maybe less, um, of engaging with the church on this topic. And I can just see so many benefits to the voices that have come out in our tribe within biblical counseling and Christian counseling and uh, Christian ministry that have helped us, especially those of us who are a little bit more conservative in the evangelical world uh, deal with and address and speak to the problem of domestic abuse. But with that, with that journey, with that uh, progress comes resistance and diversity. And so um, the diversity is something that I welcome. So if you've listened to the podcast very long, you know that I'm really a more the merrier type of guy. I I mean, I want to be theologically sound and I want us to be on similar pages. And certainly when it comes to biblical counseling, I want us to value the sufficiency of Scripture, promote progressive sanctification. Um, But honestly, there are theological nuances that are fine. We need different voices, and so it's going to be a lot easier for me to speak to my tribe as it is for maybe my Pentecostal brothers to speak to their tribe or my Nazarene brothers to speak to their tribe or my Reformed brothers and sisters to speak to their tribe. And so we want diversity. Uh, but, But there's also been a level of resistance. And within the resistance, just... Um, pushback on terminology or categories or even practically how we respond to abuse. There has been even some defense of really poor responses to abuse based on um, maybe theological defenses or uh, practical defenses or perhaps outright silence, um, being met with silence when you try to get answers for you know, why did we do this in this situation? So, you know, talking with some of my friends, not everyone is going to fall into this category, but I do think there's a lot of fear in our world within conservative Christians, evangelical Christians, when it comes to this topic. And, and I just want to talk about two today, two fears that um, I think are really hindering our work. And I don't know if we're going to come to conclusions on those fears if we're going to find remedies for those fears. But my hope is identifying them, just speaking them, will create some dialogue and discussion that might help us 
clarify our position, and do a better job in caring for people. I bring this up, and I'll say this, as I have said this before, but I'll say it again. I bring it up um, as a response in some ways to something that used to puzzle me years ago. I've become a little bit more aware of what's happening, which typically is my MO. It takes me a while to catch on. But uh, I've been introduced a few times in uh, conferences and summits and, and seminars where the MC or the person introducing me would say, Chris speaks on a very controversial topic. And that, that used to puzzle me because I would, I would often say, I don't know what's controversial on wanting to protect women and children. Like to me, it was very black and white, what we were doing. But what I've later found is that for some of our friends, some of the people that we love and some of the people in our world, it is controversial because confronting men in particular on how they treat their wives is, is dangerous for a lot of people and creates and cultivates a lot of fear for how they view marriage, how they view uh, men and women, how they view men and women in the church, uh, belief systems that are somewhat shaken by the concept of confronting, especially behavior that isn't uh, clearly illegal in, in, some, in some words, some worlds. Although that's also been a struggle when you consider uh, childhood sexual assault, within the church, and certainly physical and sexual domestic violence in the home. So let's talk about a couple fears. I think fear number one is a fear of worldly philosophy. And this is something that I get pitched quite a bit, um, and that's okay. I don't mind having these discussions. In fact, I love having these discussions in smaller groups, in church-based trainings, where there is a trepidation of, you know, Chris, so much, so much of what has come to light in the world, in the United States in particular, about domestic abuse and sexual assault comes from secular organizations. And so many of those secular organizations are tied to philosophies that we're not comfortable with. And I completely get it. I was in a situation recently where um, some biblical counselors, very, very good biblical counselors who do this work well, had asked a question um, about the Duluth model, uh, Duluth Abuse Intervention Project, who um, is best known for the power and control wheel, but also has a uh, batter intervention model called the Duluth model. Um, and the statement was, you know, some folks seem to think that the Duluth model was birthed in CRT, right, or um, critical theory. And, you know, my response was, well, it was. And I think we have to be honest about that. So much of the Duluth model training, um, at least the first couple hours, is really full of Paula Fiera and the pedagogy of the oppressed and critical theory, what we now know is critical theory. Um, that never really bothered me. I remember when I first went to a Duluth model training, um, I was one of maybe four people in the entire room that were not law enforcement. So if you know anything about uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed and what was happening in Brazil and with Fiera and, and, and the thought process on education, the educational model that they were proposing, um, you've, you've got to believe that most of the folks in the room were not buying what was being sold. I mean, the vast majority of people in the room were law enforcement. So to give a philosophy of oppression, oppressor, oppressee, based on position and title and authority, that was not going to be well-received in law enforcement. So the vast majority of the people in the training weren't even accepting 
uh, they were waiting for the nuts and bolts. And so was I, to be honest with you. I was waiting for the how do you practically engage with this population. But we have to be honest that there are worldly philosophies out there. There are secular philosophies that may run contradictory to what we believe about the Bible and the sufficient scriptures. And I think the answer to that, see, see, so much of the fear, I think, is so the power and control wheel, which was created with discussions with 200 victims about their experiences and has kind of, I think, proven the test of time that it's a very relatable model of understanding what's happening in a domestic abuse situation was not birthed out of critical theory. It was birthed out of conversation. And the response to that, yes, was developed by folks who had a high view of critical theory when it came to education uh, and were very tied philosophically to Paula Fiera and pedagogy of the oppressed. Now, what do we do with that? I think for some of us, the answer is that scares me. I don't want my people to have a view of, um, of individuals that kind of break them down into groups. I don't want people to be guilty simply because they are police officers or because they are teachers or because they are pastors. You know, I want to have a more biblical worldview. Okay, I can get on board with that. Totally cool with that. Is the answer to jettison the observational material from Duluth or is the answer to use discernment? That's the big question. The fear is legit, and I want to honor and respect people who, who have that fear, want to have dialogue with it. I think there is a fear. We want to avoid worldly philosophies. So we don't want to fall victim to viewing people the way the world views the people, viewing the people the way that this particular counseling model, right, whether it be CBT or um, some other form of counseling, or generally speaking, psychology, which is what some of our friends are afraid of. Okay. And, and, and I don't mean that in a, in, a, in a completely negative way either. I mean, it's okay to have your um, worldview. We all have a worldview that we bring to the care and help table. And I want to respect that. My, my pushback would be, when that concern comes up, we don't want worldly philosophies, or I'm afraid of worldly philosophies, then what is the answer? Is the answer to avoid the world or is the answer discernment? And I think the answer is discernment. And I think that's an individual thing for believers. I really believe that mature believers are competent to instruct one another, as Paul says in the book of Romans. I think that mature believers are called by James in James chapter 1 that if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask of God. That's where we should be going with this. Lord, I need help. I need wisdom. Grant me discernment. Ephesians 5, starting around verse 6, maybe, 6 or 7, warns us of the dangers of empty philosophies. Like there's a legitimate warning there to Christians to not partner with darkness, right? Paul's suggestion there is to look, he goes on to talk about looking to the good, what is it? The right and the true. All right, so don't partner with darkness. Don't be caught up in empty philosophy, but look to the good, look to the right, look to the true. And as if I recall correctly, he says, and try, make an attempt to discern what pleases God. I don't think there's an instruction to not interact with the world 
but to use discernment. Yeah, I don't want to partner with the darkness either. And I've had that discussion. I remember having a discussion with a friend that was kind of laying out what I did with perpetrators and just walking through really clearly. And the response was, Chris, that sounds really biblical. Well, good. I'm glad. Like, that's what I want. And, and yes, I use outside tools and I read outside folks. And uh, I have learned a lot from unbelievers, but not about my soul, not about my sanctification, not necessarily about my theology. Uh, but it has enhanced things practically because I want to use discernment. I think that's the answer. So, yeah, are there things out there that um, philosophies and, and, and viewpoints that we need to be guarded against and, and particularly concerned with? Sure. But I think the, avoid, the, the argument, the response is discernment. Lord, what do you say about this? What 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 are they getting right? What are they observing right? And man, what are they missing at the level of the heart? And I think that's always been the spirit of biblical counseling in particular, is we don't abandon science and we don't want to abandon good observation, um, but we want to be as biblical as we can be when it comes to our philosophy and our theology. And that's going to inform our practicality, right? Um, and so we talk a lot in our circles about anthropology. What do we believe about man? What do we believe about um, people? And, and I would say that um, must be driven by the Scripture as opposed to just any philosophy that's out there. Uh, John 4, 1 John 4, calls us to test the spirits. So, uh, again, discernment. Romans 12, I mentioned before, reminds us to renew our minds, not to be conformed to the pattern of the world. So don't just fall in step with the philosophy of the world, but be renewed. Renew your mind. That's one of those harmonious passages that later on, you know, Paul talks about living at peace with everyone. And then chapter 13, he's like, and that includes the government. Here's how you do that with the government. Government that's opposed to you, right? So fear number one, I think, is just a fear of worldly philosophies. And I think the answer is discernment. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to be wise. And um, I'll end that portion with this. I, I had a person at a training recently in the last year, come up to me and was really, um, so just completely sincere too, just wants to be the best counselor that they can be and uh, was kind of laying out their concerns with different modalities. And, um, and I knew some of them and I didn't know all of them. And I even was trying to be honest, you know, I don't know much about that or that um, particular modality, particular counseling methodology. Um, but we talked a little bit more about their background and how long they'd been a believer and how long they'd been in counseling. And I was like, but I trust you. Like you're a grown person who has the Holy spirit. It sounds like you're asking really good questions. Um, I trust you. And that was a foreign concept and has been in a lot of ways as we try to dictate what our followers um, do as opposed to offering correctives and, offering good insight and wisdom and asking God to grant us the discernment that we need. So, yeah, I know there's some fears out there. Um, but I also know that God is good and the Scripture is sufficient and the Holy Spirit is present in the life of his people, and he wants to give us discernment. I think the second fear, maybe this is the one that's more pressing for me, friends, and something that I'd love for us to, as a movement to, to pray about is, 
I think there's a fear of loss and potential loss um, among those of us in authority. And I do think there is a, an inflation of the importance of authority. And, and I don't even know how to put my finger on it. But there, there seems to be a, a theology of authority that often trumps um, our call to compassion or our willingness to love well. And we protect the sacredness of authority, uh, even when folks in authority are abusing it. And I think that's a fear that we should abandon. Um, and here's what I mean by that. I, I've seen this within churches. We can't confront this, Chris, because we might lose a significant giver in the church. We might cause an uproar in the church. The institution might fall victim to to failure if we call out this sexual assault by the pastor. And those all sound like fear-based responses to me. They just do. And I get it. I really do. Those are uncertain things, but they are not in our purview. God is sovereign, not us. God's in control of his church, not us. And as I told some of my friends recently online, I, I mean, I know of some pastors who have doubled down on protecting people and it's cost them their jobs and God bless them. God bless them. That was the right choice. It was the right choice to risk their job in ministry over the protection of the vulnerable. And I believe God's going to honor that. They're going to be blessed by that regardless of the immediate outcome. And to protect an institution or to protect a minister over the call of the gospel, um, I think that's, I think that's sad. Um, and the reason why I say this loss of authority or this theology of authority, I guess I should backtrack that just a little bit, because um, th- those of us who kind of talk about the work a lot, there's kind of a uniformity, not a uniformity, but there's a unity surrounding abuse, and so. What happens a lot in our world is we get challenged on terminology. So if I could just go there for a second. I need you to define abuse. Define it much more narrow and more clearly so we can clearly know what we're talking about. And usually that entails things like, you know, I I don't like including emotional abuse. I I really think we should limit it to physical and sexual abuse, things that are legal or illegal. Um, Other terms are like we have to define what we mean by believe. we got to really stretch that out because you can't believe everything. You can't just believe a victim. The scriptures have to be our our source of truth, which is true. But oftentimes that challenge on the word believe is, you know, we have to assume, you know, we have to get the other side of the story because she could be lying. We almost assume that the victim is lying rather than kind of listening to what's being told. We never do that in any other form of counseling. When a counselor sits down and says, I've been depressed, our first response is, well, we'll see. It's not that. Our first response is, tell me more. Help me understand. And so when an abuse victim discloses that, you know, I'm being harmed by my partner, I don't think our response should be, we'll see. I think our response should be, tell me more. Help me understand. I want to serve you well by learning. And I, I think that's something that we, we struggle with in large part because we know that if we believe what we're hearing, if we respond to what we're hearing, that it may undermine someone else's authority or position, and we don't want to do that. And I think that's um, a problem. So let me just talk a little bit about the distinction. So for those of us who are in the work, 
a lot of us see abuse as being just tied to position or advantage. It, and that's, a, that's troubling because if we say abuse occurs when someone in authority, position, or power uses that to create fear, threat, or harm to someone else, then some folks in our tribe here, well, you're trying to undermine authority. And I don't think that's, I think we're trying to redeem authority by saying, with great power comes great responsibility, as Spider-Man would say, or as Jesus would say, more importantly, to whom much is given, much is required. There, there is a hierarchy of responsibility. So the hierarchy that we often hear about is not simply a hierarchy of power to do whatever you want. It is of responsibility that you are to be held accountable to and for. So think about it this way. When we use the term child abuse, our mind rarely goes to a child abusing a parent. No, child abuse is about a caregiver, a parent, a guardian harming their child, their child in their care. When we say animal abuse, we are not talking about an animal abusing their owner. Although certainly we have seen animals who have attacked their owners. Uh, That's not animal abuse. That is something different. Abuse is about the owner using their capacity to harm the animal. Elder abuse is about a caregiver using their capacities to harm an elderly person who otherwise is in need of care and support, not harm. Spiritual abuse is about using one's power and position as a spiritual leader to harm others. Cults are not bottom-up. Cults are top-down, right? So the ultimate form of spiritual abuse is, is cult leadership, and that is an abuse of power and authority and position. A domestic abuse assumes more mutuality than the other forms, right? So it's not wife abuse, it's domestic abuse because we understand there are aspects in which violence and abuse in the home can occur from one partner to another. However, the majority of abuse that occurs within the home from one partner to another is from husbands to wives or from males to females. It assumes more, but however, position, power, authority will always be key to determining it. And when we do have a spouse, say, who's normally um, the more vulnerable, in this case the wife, abuse usually occurs when there's some advantage. Um, Reputation, family business, finances, um, access to certain forms of of harm or uh, threat, such as being a ex-military or expert in a firearm, right? So there's usually an advantage. And so we bring that to light because that's what's needed for abuse to take place. Otherwise, it's much more conflict. And I think the challenge for us, who those of us who value authority, is to recognize that when abuse is present, it's not it's not a challenge to undermine all authority. It is to hold that particular person accountable for their actions, the way in which they've harmed their partner. So there's a lot of fears. I mean, we can get that. We could go on and on and on about things that we're concerned about, things that we're afraid about, uh, you know, things that concern us about the movement. And certainly not everybody Not everyone has to agree with our take on it. In fact, we welcome, remember, diversity. That's we do welcome that. So there are different approaches to this. 
But if we're operating at all out of this fear, I, I can't take good advice because it's too closely connected to, to people who've given bad advice. That could be a problematic when we abandon worldly philosophy rather than discern worldly philosophy. Or two, I can't accept concepts of abuse because it may undermine authority when authority should be challenged when it's abusive. I think those are fears we should take back to the Lord. We should operate in love and do the right thing. I hope that was helpful. I hope the discussion's beneficial. We'll probably need to revisit it. Um, But you can head over to our Facebook page if you would like, PeaceWorks, and just let us know what are some of the fears that you see? What are some of the fears that you're experiencing as church leaders or maybe some that you've witnessed as a victim or a survivor? Thank you guys for being part of the PeaceWorks podcast. Be sure to like, review, rate, subscribe, follow, whatever the platform you're listening on asks you to do. And until next time, friends, God bless.